It's good to see you. Good to be here in a new year. Good to be worshiping together. Um, before we dive into the text, um, I want to start with this. I'm, I'm going to read a list of symptoms. Don't raise your hand, but I want you to think about if you've experienced any of these symptoms recently. Restlessness, fatigue, feeling agitated, difficulty concentrating, irritability, tense muscles, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, avoiding social situations, irrational fears. These are all signs and symptoms of anxiety. I can't imagine anybody in this room didn't check one of those boxes, at least. We are in a culture right now, like our time, our place, anxiety is everywhere. We can't get away from it. It is in all the people you interact with every day. And if you really look for it, you can see these signs coming out all around you. And it is in you. And it is in me. Anxiety might be the disease of our generation. It's everywhere, certainly in the last couple of years, it's kind of hit a, a bigger than ever, a, a climactic moment for anxiety in our country, around the world. Interestingly, I read a, a study that came out in September that ranked Tennessee as the number one state in the United States for adults with anxiety or depression symptoms. 10 percentage points higher than the average. Our anxiety is causing incalculable amounts of distress in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships. The thing about anxiety and stress and worry is it just goes with you everywhere you go. You can't escape it. Like because it's, it's in here, it's in here, and it's all out there, it's just everywhere we go. It's like a, a cloud, a dark cloud, storm cloud, rain cloud hanging over us. I was trying to think of an illustration I could use to, to do this. Joe, go ahead and come out. And, and this was the best I came up with, okay? You're going to have to use uh, your imagination a little bit. Imagine this to be like the dark clouds that just hang over you. You know, I, I, I told Joe, I was like, you know, this is, this is an idea I had, but, but balloons, uh, yeah, yeah, stay for a second. <laughs> balloons are so cheery. You know, how can we make this feel like anxiety? And of course, Joe's specialty is black. So black <laughs> balloons. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. But I want you to imagine, this is my anxiety. And, and if we could all see each other's anxiety and stress, you'd have a group of these black balloons hovering above you right now. You brought them in with you this morning. Everywhere I turn, everywhere I go, they catch up to me. They're right here. Here are some things that we tend to worry about. Our health, our children, our money relationships, jobs, what others think about us, our past, our future, conflict, aging, our appearance, our weight, deadlines, safety, parenting, marriages, the list goes on and on and on. And so what I'm going to do with these balloons is I'm going to leave them up here with me because I want to give a visual illustration 
of what we're talking about this morning. My experience is that although anxiety is invisible to other people, it's an ever-present part of the reality of the person who's underneath it. And so I want you to be able to see this. I want you to be able to remember it. I wanted to make the invisible visible. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about worry and anxiety. Jesus himself had a lot to say about worry, worry and anxiety. And the passage that Luke read for us that we're studying this morning is maybe one of the best known, maybe the most important passage in the whole Bible as it relates to stress, as it relates to worry and anxiety. The problem with most of these texts are we don't really know what to do with them as modern Christians, in my opinion. Do we actually believe what they say because they don't really seem to work? Now, is what this text saying? Well, just pray and your anxiety will be replaced with God's peace. That seems to be what this text is saying. Is it your experience that it's that easy? It's not mine. So this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to lean into this text. Now, let me just say a couple things, and you all know this. I do not have any background in psychology or mental health or any medical training of any kind. I'm a pastor, and Lloyd and I are Bible teachers. So I know for some of you in the room right now, watching online, th this, this goes beyond sort of a, a, a normal anxiety that most of us carry around, and, and it, it's a huge deal in your life. And, and, and I'll, I'll just say, I don't know how to speak to that level of anxiety, but I don't think you're excluded from something hopeful in this text. And for all of us who just maybe have what you might call the normal level of anxiety, my hope this morning is just, I just want to teach this text faithfully. I want to teach it as best as I can because I believe that God wants to open our eyes to something and I think he wants us to lean in. This is not an easy passage. I think he wants to challenge us. I, I think it's his purpose for a, a, allowing us to hear it, to rehear it this morning. So with that said, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We are getting pretty close to the end of this book. And last week, Lloyd's text took us through verse 1, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 4, and we're going to go through verse 7, with the verses that you just heard read. And I'm going to take these first two, just these first two verses, verses 2 and 3, and I'm not going to spend long on them because I want to get to the, the back half. But let's look at them. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's kind of interesting to imagine what might have been going on between these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. We have no idea, but we know there's something they did not agree on. And it would have been significant for Paul to, to call them out, so to speak, to mention them by name. It not only would have been significant, it had to have been long-standing. Because Epaphroditus, who was a part of that church, made his way all the way to Paul to give him the gifts of the church while he was in prison in Rome. And then he made his way all the way back, and Paul had him carry this message. So this was a long-standing struggle, a long-standing disagreement. And likely, these two women, it wasn't just a personal disagreement. It had something to do with the body. It had something to do with the church. These were likely influential women, leaders in this community. Don't forget, it was a, a woman, Lydia, who God used that was the spark 
to help start this church. And, and he references this true companion, this person that he's calling to come alongside these two women in, in kind of a veiled way. I think it would have been obvious to the original hearers who he was referring to, but, but some people theorize he was referring to Lydia. And he goes on to mention someone else, Clint, the, or Clement, rather. The idea is there were a group of people who were in unity to start this church. This is who Paul is talking about. Yodia, Sintiki, the true companion, whether that's Lydia or whether that's someone else. Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You all, we all, Paul is saying, we were together in unity and God did something amazing in our midst that started this church. So he's saying, I urge these two, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. And by the way, that's not disconnected from anxiety. A lot of our anxiety relates to relationships, but I want to keep moving to, to get to the next verses. Now, verses four to seven, we're going to put them on the screen at once because I want you to see how they connect together, but I'm going to take it a little bite at a time. So let's start with, with the first phrase in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. If you ever go to a Bible study class is teaching you how to study the Bible or a seminar or you've ever read a book about how to study the Bible, you're going to see at some point in time that the teacher is going to say, pay attention in your study to what gets repeated. That's just a simple, general principle. Paul not only repeats rejoice in the Lord, but he calls out the fact that he's repeating it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say. And then he says it again. It's like he's double underlining it and putting it in bold and marking it with a, a ta, you know, italics. He's doing it all. Most times when we hear the word rejoice, we think of like this inner emotion that, that we feel and then it sort of comes out as like happiness. You know, rejoice. I don't think Paul means very different from that. But in the Greek, the original audience would have heard it more this way. Celebrate. Celebrate. Now, the, the difference in our English between rejoice and celebrate is, I don't know about you, but for me, rejoice is kind of like something I will only do when I feel joy inside. But celebrate is something I can choose to do. I can choose to go to a party to celebrate someone's birthday. I can choose to celebrate a holiday. It's, it's a part of something I'm intentional with. You've chosen this morning to come into this room. And did you know that Sundays have always been in the church, in the church's history, celebration points? It's why they're on Sundays instead of on Sabbath. So, you know, Sabbath was, was Friday evening to Saturday evening. Sunday is Resurrection Day. So they're little mini celebrations. And so I, th I think what Paul is saying is he was like, keep celebrating because we, we want the whole world around us to know we have something to celebrate in a, in a world of stress, in a world of anxiety. Now, Paul takes it beyond just celebrate together on Sundays and rejoice in the Lord on Sundays. He's saying always, rejoice in the Lord always. Is that realistic? Be real with me. It does not feel realistic to me. Rejoice in, you know, sometimes I, I read some things in the Bible and I'm just being honest with you guys. I'm just like, am I supposed to take that seriously? Is, you know, is that, is that hyperbole? What's going on here? Well, here's one thought as I've thought about this. You're not going to always have a, a, a countenance of joy. You, not 24-7. That's just not realistic. But have you ever thought about this, that every enjoyable moment in your life is an opportunity to celebrate. 
a little mini celebration, a little mini rejoicing. Now think about all the enjoyable moments in your life. We've, we've ta- if you've been around fellowship, we've talked about this from time to time. You're gonna go eat lunch somewhere. Or you're gonna go home. You're gonna have some food, you know. Uh, you're gonna do, you maybe take a nap this afternoon. It's a good day to be inside. Maybe you're gonna read a book. Maybe you're gonna watch a television show that you enjoy or you're gonna watch a movie or, you know, maybe you've got work, but, but there's some enjoyment that can come being productive. Your day is filled with little points of celebration if you will open your eyes to them. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, the giver of every good and perfect gift. So Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Like, just let it be part of your rhythm as these little moments of enjoyment come into your life in, in the midst of a anxious, stressful existence. Don't forget to rejoice. Paul is building to something here related directly to our worry and anxiety, and I just don't want you to miss the fact that he starts there. He starts with celebrate. He's not going to say, you know, pretend that anxieties don't exist. No, they exist. They're real. But we, we start with rejoice in the Lord. Then he goes on, this next phrase, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a puzzling phrase, and I think it's puzzling because the word reasonableness is maybe not the best translation of that word. Other translations say gentleness, considerateness, unselfishness. They're actually getting closer, I think, to the meaning because the word is is not about your own internal reasonableness. The word is about your attitude toward others. I like the way I.H. Marshall, he's a a Bible scholar, he, he said it this way. It's the attitude of a man who is charitable toward men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings because he takes their whole situation into his reckoning. You come across people every single day who have sharp edges, who are angry and irritable and impatient and could not care less about you. Paul is saying in in a world like that, we Christians are to be known as people who have a graciousness about us. That would be the the word that I might choose to translate this based on the study I've done on this word. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. How relevant is that command for us right now, today? What would it look like for you, your family, your, your small group, us as a body, to be little points of grace in a culture, in a society, in a moment in time with so much stress and so much anxiety and so much irritability? Let your graciousness be known to everyone This is what's being commanded. Again, Paul's laying the groundwork to help us with worry and anxiety. So he starts with rejoice, then he moves into our attitude toward people that are all stressed out and anxious and irritable. It's like, be something different. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gracious toward others. And then he gets to this five-word nugget that is so critical to this passage, the Lord is at hand. At first, it seems like an oddly placed phrase. But I like the way the ESV punctuates it. You see the semicolon? Now, 
remember punctuation was not, is not in the Greek text. They didn't use punctuation. That wasn't invented till later. So it just looks like one big solid block of text. So Bible translators and interpreters have to figure out where one thought ends and the next thought begins. And I really like the way ESV has handled this because I think it's what Paul intended. The Lord is at hand, therefore, same sentence, same thought, even though there's a verse break. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. So what does it mean for the Lord to be at hand? It's a... It's a little bit of a weird phrase. Other translations use the word near. The Lord is near. That's not a bad way to understand it. It just means close. It just means near, close by. But there are two ways to interpret that. And there's a lot written and a lot of debates about what Paul intended. One way to interpret it is sort of spatial nearness, not like outer space, but like, you know, the space around us, spatial nearness. The Lord is close by. Like the presence of God is, is near. And I think that's true. The other way to interpret this would be a temporal nearness. The coming of the Lord is close. You know, the, coming, the return of the Lord is at hand. That's also true. I don't think we have to choose. I think it's likely Paul knowingly meant both. And you see other parts of the scripture, Old and New Testaments, that talk about the nearness of God spatially. He is here. He is with you. That's important to anxious people. There's a lot of places in the New Testament that's talking about his coming is imminent. It's close at hand. That's repeated over and over. That's also important for anxious people. I think there's good evidence that Paul meant both, even Jesus, when he started his ministry, you know, he began to teach the gospel. And the gospel is summarized. The, the very beginning of Matthew, the gospel is summarized as this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exact same root in the Greek as what Paul uses here, Jesus used in his preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what did that mean? It was near, in fact, it was here. It had arrived because Jesus was there. But it also was close on its way. It was close still to come. The already, not yet. I think it's holding both in this context. Okay. The Lord is at hand. Semicolon, same thought, same sentence. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, here's another one of those commands that just seems ridiculously unrealistic. Guys, if we don't talk honestly about Scripture, what are we doing here? You know, I... One of our values at Fellowship is courageously real, and that applies to a lot of things. And one of the ways I want it to apply, and I know Lloyd does too, is we want this to apply to the way we teach the Bible. This is a struggle. How are we supposed to not be anxious about anything? That seems crazy. It doesn't seem like that's even possible. I don't think Paul was obtuse about that. I think it's why he started with, the Lord is at hand. In other words, if you believe that God himself is nearby, he's here, and he's coming back to make all things well, it does change the way you think about the present, the anxiousness, the worries. It does. It's not as simple as just, oh, I remember he's here, therefore my worry is gone. 
but I think that's significant. And we'll come back to that because I do believe that little phrase, the Lord is at hand, just, just can unlock this passage. Okay, one of the things I appreciate about Paul is he rarely gives a negative command without putting a positive command right on its heels. So he almost never says, don't do this without coming behind it and saying, instead do this. And, and he does the same thing here. He says, do not be anxious about anything, negative command, let's keep going, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, positive command. So you have to appreciate this about Paul. Even though sometimes it feels like he's being unrealistic or what have you, you have to appreciate the fact that he's not just saying, don't be anxious. He's telling us what to do with our anxiety. He's saying, start a conversation with God. Talk about it. There are four key terms that... Paul uses here when he's talking about prayer, and, and we're going to unpack each of them briefly. I'm going to circle them just so you can see them as I go. The first is prayer. That is exactly what you think it is. Prayer is the generic term for prayer. But don't forget, prayer is not some ceremonial, religious, hard thing to do. Prayer is just conversation with God. It doesn't have to sound pretty. You don't have to know magic words. It's just what's on your mind, what's on your heart. Just start talking. And I know it feels weird because God doesn't talk back, at least not in the way we're accustomed to in, in other conversations. It's just conversation with God. So that's a starting point. Start a conversation with God. You know, some of us were carrying around all this anxiety and it's just like, we're not talking to God about it. You know, maybe we mentioned it one time, but guys, if you're carrying this around every day, we should be talking to God about this. Every day, if it's on your heart, it's on your mind, talk to him about it. So that's the starting point, it's just prayer. So then he goes to supplication. So supplication, let me circle that one. Supplication is a specific type of prayer. Supplication is when you ask God for things. So prayer can be, God, this is a beautiful day, or, or, or God, you know, here's how I'm doing today. Supplication is, God, here's my needs. I'm gonna ask for help. Thanksgiving, we're very familiar with as well. Again, that means exactly what you think it means. It's gratitude. It's talking to God about his goodness, about his mercy. Again, you can see how this connects back to rejoice in the Lord always. It's like Have an ongoing conversation with God about the, the things in your life that are positive, the things in your life that are little gifts. Celebrate those things. Talk to God both about your needs and the things that you're rejoicing in. And then the last word I want to focus on, let your request. So I want to talk about that word. Requests goes along with supplication. Requests are the specific things you're asking for. Each request is a tangible need that God wants you to bring to him. And so if you think about it, most of us don't usually pray in specifics. I think part of the reason our prayers are often not very specific is because we lack the faith to pray specifically because we're afraid God might not answer it. You're risking something to make a big specific request of God, are you not? Well, what am I supposed to do if he doesn't come through? You know, what, what if his answer is no? What does that mean? And so we back away, we shy away from praying big, specific things. And right here, what, what Paul is urging us to do is like, 
those specific requests, that's what the word means in Greek. It's a very specific word. It means the specific things you're asking for. Bring them to God. So it's like every one of these things represents something. It's like, this is my marriage, and this is our parenting, and this is our church, and you know, this is my health. And you know, you know, you got your own set of stresses. Let your request, specific requests, be made known to God. I love the fact that we're invited to do this. God's not too busy to hear you specifically ask him for things. The interesting thing is he already knows our requests, doesn't he? And yet he still invites us. Guys, this is God speaking to you right now in the Bible by his spirit who authored this text. The same spirit in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is hearing these words right now. He is inviting you to pray specific prayers. He is inviting you to make specific requests. Why? He wants you to show up. Not in some generalized, generic, hey God, I'm here kind of way, but God, I'm struggling. Do you see what's happening in this relationship? I know you do. I need help. Do you understand how I'm feeling and thinking about this specific thing? I know you do, but I need help, you see. Make your requests known. It's an invitation of a father who loves to be with his children, who loves to talk to his children. I remember when our first daughter, Ansley, was born, I have a specific memory when she was an infant of holding her in our backyard and walking around and just like wanting to tell her everything about everything. And, you know, here's what a tree is and this is a flower and someday you'll understand what all this stuff is and God. And I remember talking about all these things. And it suddenly occurred to me, I can't wait till she can talk back and we can have a real conversation. And then, you know, they grow up and, and sometimes I don't always want to have those conversations all the time as much as they might want to be. But that's because I'm not a perfect father. Your father is eager. He desires for you to talk. He can't wait for you to show up, for you to be with him, for you to ask specific things and make requests. Now, this next part, this next verse is so important because Paul is saying that, that prayer, at least this kind of prayer that he's describing, has a specific outcome. Here's the outcome, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a remarkable verse. I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I want to say just a couple things about it. Peace in the Bible is never about just the absence of stress or the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of wholeness. Everything you're worried about represents something broken or something that might potentially get broken in your life. What the scripture is saying here is this is better, this is a, a greater invitation than just kind of some kind of meditation that makes you forget about your worries for a while. What the scripture is saying is there's actually a wholeness in God which surpasses understanding and it surpasses understanding because the human mind can't, can't do it. Like the, the human mind is capable of forgetting things and the human mind is capable of distracting itself from stresses and anxiety. The human mind is, is capable of regulating to some degree to put things in perspective. But the human mind is not capable 
of bringing wholeness to anything. Wholeness is only in God. The peace of God only comes from God. So no amount of stress-relieving techniques or exercise or meditation or deep breaths or essential oils can give you this kind of peace. And I'm not knocking all those things. I encourage you to pursue all those things. Those can all be part of being healthy, but, but they won't bring wholeness. The peace of God, the wholeness of God, the shalom of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love this because when you really read this text, you realize that Paul is personifying the peace of God, the wholeness of God. He's, he's, he's using a word guard that was a military term in that context. He's saying, you know, God's peace is going to keep guard over your hearts and your minds. So a way to think about this is God's peace is not something you have to try to grasp onto and, and hold onto. In fact, what Paul is saying is God's desire for you is that his peace will hold onto you. That his wholeness will guard you. In Christ Jesus, the last three words are just so important. They, they, they always are when we see them in our Bibles. In Christ Jesus, this is identity. Once you are in Christ. Through faith in Jesus, there is no separating yourself ever. No matter if you think you've forgotten him, no matter if you've rebelled, no matter if you've just been living like heck, you cannot separate yourself from the love of God once you are in Christ. Now, there's the promise. Right? That's a big promise. It, it, it seems just too good to be true. You know, you present requests to God. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why doesn't it work? It sounds like I'm just saying something scandalous. I want to be honest. It's not as easy as it sounds. It, I, I, I know, I guarantee, a bunch of you in this room have struggled with things and you've gone to this very passage and you've tried to do this exactly as it says in the text and you're still, they're still there. It made me feel better for a little while, they're still there. I think most people when they read this passage or even maybe when they teach this passage, they either go down one of, one of two paths. One is to just sort of like, it's too good to be true, it's fanciful, it can't really be real and dismiss it. But the other one is to just say, it's, it's just really easy it's a formula. If you're worried, if you're afraid, it means you've not prayed. I beg to differ. It's just not that simple. And, and I know many of you know, know what I'm talking about. Let me grab on it. Let's just, let's just hold our fears for a minute. Let's hold our anxieties for, for a minute. What are these actually? They're not made up. Now, I know there are some extreme examples where people have anxiety about stuff that's not real, and, and I'm not speaking to that. I'm not qualified to speak to that. I'm just talking about, generally speaking, these things are real. They represent real things in your life with importance, real things that you're concerned about. They're actual, tangible things. You wouldn't be worried about them if they weren't. Relationships matter. Finances matter. Security matters. Health matters. It all matters. I get it. I feel it. I'm also guessing for most of you, these represent things that you have prayed about. That's my guess. So if this passage is to be believed, why are they still here? 
you might be thinking, oh, okay, maybe I haven't done the formula quite right, you know, and let's go back and look at it again um, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Oh, I forgot the thanksgiving part. That's the secret. And, you know, go back and pray. This time, God, I'm going to pray again, and I'm going to thank you, and then you're going to give me peace. I don't think that's what this text is calling us to exactly. It's not a, a, a magic formula. You know, it's not a simple one plus one equals, equals two. I, I think when you really dig down into it, when you really think about the life of Paul, how this lived out, when you think about your own faith experience, when you integrate this with the rest of Scripture, what you're going to find is this is a deep call to faith that is never one and done. That's not been my experience anyway. You know, faith is never one and done. It, it, it's an on, like we're being called to something, we're being stretched into something here. So it's not as easy as it sounds to let go of a fear. That's what all these things represent, right? They're things we're afraid of, and it's easy to say, well, just if you have fears, you're not having faith. I I don't think it's always that simple to me. To me, my faith and my fears are usually kind of mixed in together. So it's not as easy as it sounds to let go of a fear because to let go actually means that that I no longer have say in this. If I let this go... I don't know, what's up there that's sharp? These balloons could pop and make a loud noise, you know? And Silly example, but there's bad things that can happen when we let go of our fear. Fears that you keep on a string are often less scary than ones you let go into the wild. I think Paul knew this. Certainly the Holy Spirit in Paul knows this, which is why I think he snuck in that little phrase, the Lord is at hand. If you don't actually believe those words, I don't think this passage will be of any help to you at all. There is a lot to be afraid of in this world. We can admit that together. If you don't actually believe the Lord is at hand, I, I, I don't know what to say. But I know most of you say you do believe the Lord is at hand, that he actually is near by his spirit and that Jesus is coming again. And I want to talk about what that means for you because I want this to stretch you a little bit. I, I don't want us to play church. You, you understand what I'm saying? And trust me, I'm talking to myself too. To believe the Lord is at hand in the sense that he is near us means we're at the center of his care. It means that we haven't run him off intentionally or unintentionally. It means that he sees us. It means that he knows us and and all the little things around us, including these things that we're afraid of, means he, he sees it. It means that you have his attention if you believe the Lord is at hand. To believe the Lord is at hand in the sense that he's coming soon means all will be well. It means there's nothing bad that could happen in your life that can't and won't ultimately be redeemed when all is said and done. And that stretches our faith, doesn't it? It means God will make everything right. Messy and broken things now will be made whole then. So, 
This is, this is what I, I really want you to, to grab onto and, and, and stretch yourself in this a bit. The point of this passage is not, did you pray about your worries according to some formula? The point of the passage is, do you trust God? And I kind of wish that wasn't the point because that's a lot harder than praying a formula. Do you talk to God like you trust him? Let me give you just a little illustration. You know, Jody and I try from time to time to get, to get away, just the two of us. And, and uh, you know, we, we've, we've gone to a couple different places in the last couple of years and each time we've called on either her parents or my parents to watch our kids while we're gone. Many of you have done something similar. Now, if we were to go to the beach or wherever and leave our kids alone at home, we could never relax. There's no chance. We'd be, we'd be agonized. We were, how late are they staying up? What are they eating? You know, all these kinds of things. Like, we'd be worried sick. But we trust our parents. And so we can entrust our worry, our concern to our parents, and we can go relax. Do you think about God that way when you make your requests known to him. It's like when I ask my parents to take care of my girls and they say, yes, it's done. I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Genuine prayer is like that. And I'm not guilting anybody because this is hard to grow into, but genuine prayer is an act of surrender. We have a great example of this when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he made his request known to God. And guess what? God said no to his request. You remember what Jesus' request was? He says, if there's another way, take the cup from me. He's like, I don't want to have to go through this if there's any other way. But then in the same breath, Jesus comes around and says, but not my will, but your will. You see what Jesus was doing? He was making the request known and he was letting it go. He was releasing it. He was trusting God to it. He's like, I, I'm going to make my request known. I'm going to show up in my struggle, my agony, my fear. I think Jesus had fear. But I'm also going to let it go because I trust you more than I trust me. So another way to think about this passage, and we'll start in, ending on this here, I, I, I just, I I retranslated one little phrase according to what I think Paul is meaning here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, surrender your requests to God. That, that's sort of the, the core of genuine prayer, of genuine supplication is, is a surrender. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus This is the kind of passage that makes you ask yourself, do I really believe this? I want you to wrestle with that. I've, I've been wrestling with that. For most of us, the reason our balloons are still here is that we may have prayed some words about them, but what have we not yet done? What have I not yet done? Let it go. Oh, man. Hold on. I'm going to try this again. Then <laughs> they're going to come right back down. Okay, just imagine if I had some scissors. <laughs> it was kind of a disaster the first service too. 
I have to admit, so sometimes you have these ideas and they don't actually play out, but, but just imagine them floating away up in the air and they're going to come right back down. <laughs> oh. All right, let me get you back. Direct your attention to the screen. <laughs> the invitation to joy. Two things. Remember, release. What is happening? Oh, Joe, yes! Hero! <laughs> Where do they go? Seriously, I don't even see them anymore. <laughs> Praise God! Ben, come on out. Okay, the invitation to joy. Now, Lloyd and I do this every week because we, it's so easy just to come in here and you hear a message and you, maybe you're like, you're feeling, all right, I get it or I don't get it or I'm inspired or I'm not inspired, whatever. And then you go out and you live, you know, live life and that's how it works. But we want to give you something you can take with you. So remember, release. If you can just remember those two things, remember and release. I'm not trying to give you an easy formula. I'm just trying to drill some things in your mind. What are you to remember? The Lord is at hand. Stretch your faith with that. Do you really believe that or not? If you do, it changes everything. If you don't, I'm kind of like, I don't know how you're going to release it. And then release. Think of one anxious thing you need to talk to God about. Ask yourself, what am I afraid of? That's an important question in, in, in this. Do I trust him with this? What would it take for me to surrender? And then talk to God about it. And if you're able, and you might not be able right away. You, you can't go zero to 60 in one, one prayer. If you're able, release it into his care. And if you're not let, yet able, keep, keep working, keep talking, keep going, keep pressing in. Okay, this is a process. It's a process. Let, let, me, let me pray for us. Actually, before I pray, I want us to celebrate the table. I want to celebrate the table. Would you mind grabbing that on that chair right there? Thank you so much. I left that there. Go ahead and take out your communion elements, the bread and the cup. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I want you just to hold that bread in your hand for just a minute. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the table, but I want to make a connection for you. Do, do you realize that what you're holding in your hand right now, this bread and, and this juice, represents the decision Jesus made to say, not my will, but your will? Do you realize there was a part of the, the fully human part of Jesus he had a desire not to go through. That, that's how hard it was. That's how difficult this was. And yet, he was willing to say yes. He was willing to let go. That's exactly what he did. He, he let go. He let himself go to the will of the Father. He did that because you haven't. He did that because at some level you can't not always, not fully, not 24-7, not, not holistically like Jesus did. You can grow into it in, in, in fits and starts, and that's called the Christian life. That's called maturity, and, and I want to encourage you on that path. But you also have to know that only Jesus did this right. But because he did it right, you are now in. You are in Christ. Christ.